This podcast is a presentation of Gateway Fellowship, Paulsville, Washington. Experience community, find hope. Check us out at gatewayfellowship.com. Well, Dr. Tom Fizemeyer, if you don't know him, would you give him a hand? <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. So uh, Tom and his good wife, Donna, over here, they've been a part of Gateway for a few years now. Tom retired as dean of faculty at Gordon-Conwell. And I'll just say like one of the most prestigious seminaries in the country. Wouldn't you agree? Of course you agree. Yeah, you, you got to agree, yeah. And, uh, they, used, so, they used to be until I went there. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so Tom, we've teamed up before. And so thank you for joining us for this fi- final day. So you have the smart Tom. And, and you got me. So um, that's the way that goes. But as a pastor, you know, I, I pray um, that um, your marriages, your marriage will be solid and strong. I pray for all your relationships, if you're not married, will be, will be well. I, I pray that you will suffer well. And I mean that in a very biblical sense. We'll talk about that, what that means um, at, some, at some point. I pray that as we together dive into um, the Word of God, that we, just, we continually devote ourselves to, not, to the teaching of His Word and to the learning of His Word and living that out in all, all life. So that's what this, this Truth Matter series has been, been all about. So if you're just joining us online or here for the very, very first time, I encourage you maybe to go back, go to gatewaynk.com, and you will see all the teaching there. We, we've dove in because there are issues that we're facing today that we felt like we, we've got to address, and we have to address them from a biblical perspective in what we call living from a biblical worldview. And so we're wrapping up the series. Next week we start a series called Following Jesus from the book of Luke. And so we'll be introducing the Gospels next week. We're going to talk about how we live this out then this life following the example of Jesus. So that begins next Sunday. But on this final Sunday, we ask you to submit questions that we were going to address today. So I asked Dr. Tom to join me, and uh, so glad you are. So thank you. Thank Thanks. You. I was yeah. telling Tom, you know, it's nice to be invited, but there's only one thing that's better than being invited. That's being invited back. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Well, and you're going to invite you back again, too. So anyway, so you submit, I tell you, you submit some fantastic questions. So um, what we did is we took, took the questions, and because a lot of them fell into like almost the same category, tried to form the question in a way that kind of captured them, them all, and uh, hopefully we can address, address everything that you submitted, or we're going to try to do that within eight questions today. The resources that we'll mention, you don't need to worry about jotting them down. We'll be <coughs> posting those on the website as well this, this next week. So are you ready? Ready. Okay, I got question number one. Here it is. I thought we would start off with an easy question. As a pro-life follower of Jesus, how do I respond to the debate that argues for terminating a pregnancy as a result of rape or incest? That's an easy one, right? So let's, let's, let's dive into that for just a, a, a few moments because I think the question, which is really an excellent question, whoever the submitter was, really points to two issues. Of course, points to the matter of life. It recognizes that Um, All of life is precious regardless of the circumstance of conception. I think we have to recognize that all life is precious. And then the debate that, that, uh, or the um, discussion, how are you would frame that, the argument that pro-life and pro-choice often enter into um, regarding rape and, and incest. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's where we live. So as a, as a starting point though, um, we must recognize that, that the crime of rape is just that, yes? 
and it's a horrific crime suffered by a woman, and the perpetrator should be punished to the full extent of the law. It is true, and so we, we need to recognize that even when we're in discussion with it. It's a horrific crime and um, should happen to, to no woman, but, but, but we know that it, that it does. But here's what I want to say about, about the debate. Um, that what I see is this, and perhaps you see it, see it as well, uh, that the pro-choice side will often use this argument of rape and incense, and to some extent, um, the health of a, of a mother or the life of a mother as a little bit of a red herring to support all abortion. And uh, which the mass majority, um, 80, 80 plus percent, someone told me this morning it's actually 98 percent of abortions fall under the category of, of elective. So often um, this horrific event of a rape is used to justify all abortions, including elective abortions. And so the debate can turn very, very often it turns emotional and understandably so. And so in that debate and in that time of discussion, I think we do well to understand and recognize the horrific nature of, of what took place, recognize that there is a life, but really the debate is perhaps more over here to elective abortion. I can recommend a, a, a book to you that I've, I have read, and again, we'll post it on, on the website. It's just entitled What to Say When by Sean Carney and Steve Carlin, and the book deals with a lot of the questions that come up that you'll be, you'll be involved in um, if you're engaged in, the, in this conversation. So that's kind of my response here. Would you throw, throw anything on that? Yeah, and I think, as you mentioned, and the, and the proportions are extremely low fractions of a percentage fractions of a right. percent yeah um and not to, and these are terrible crimes they're terrible yeah. yeah yeah so we try to shift the conversation over to back to the to back the, to, to the majority right right so okay um question number two what does it look like to, for Tom, what does it look like to show respect and compassion to individuals living outside biblical sexual standards is premarital sex permissible if a wedding is planned? And is it okay for a spouse to withhold sex? So I'll just toss that question to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, I think where I always want to start, yeah. sometimes I feel like we're playing defense a lot in the church. Um, and I think what we need to do and where we need to start is the place of what is the positive teaching of God's plan for human flourishing when it comes to the sexes. And that plan is laid out very clearly. It's in the Old Testament. Jesus teaches it in the New. He just reiterates it, that God plans for a man and a woman to be joined in marriage and for them to become one sexually as a sacrament of the meaning of that marriage. That's the plan. And it's laid out very, very clearly. So I like to think of marriage within this concept of covenant. We're in a covenant marriage partners make together, but they make that covenant under God. There's a, a, a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the covenant, and it's important to understand that. It's not simply for Christians, it's not simply a covenant between two people. It involves God, it involves the third party. And so the covenant must honor how God in view, envisions uh, marriage and what God sees there. Um, one of the questions we were asked is this business about uh, one person withholding sex from another. 
And um, the Bible talks about this. Paul speaks about this very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. And he says that the, the, the man and the woman are made for each other, they're one, and that they need to be responsive to each other's sexual needs. The way I like to put it is this way. Don't weaponize sex. Yeah, that's good. Don't weaponize sex. It's not right in a marriage. In the same way that you love and care for your spouse in all the other arenas of marriage, this is uh, the same is, is appropriate for the marriage bed. This is the place where you love and care for each other's needs. This is right and it's good. Uh, I met with a young man many, many years ago. He had been married for four years. He was in my office and he was crying. And, he, and I said, what's the, what's the matter? And he said, I've never had sex with my wife. She won't have sex with me. It's been four years. I'm so, I'm so broken over this. Well, she had broken the covenant. That's what's going on here. She should never have done that to him. And if it goes back the other way, I've been in situations where I've seen men that have wanted to be sexually weird and abusive with their wives, and it's put their wives in very awkward, very difficult situations because they're not honoring the covenant. The point is, is that we're given to each other as a gift in marriage. And we love each other and we help each other. We have sexual needs and this is the place where those are to be met. Uh, the, the other question that uh, was asked was, is premarital sex okay uh, if, um, if a wedding is in, the, is in the offing, if a wedding is planned, is it, is it okay to have premarital sex? Um, well, here's the thing. What is it that makes a wedding a wedding? What is it that makes the covenant the covenant? It's when they come together and stand before God and before these witnesses and they say their vows. So there is no covenant until there's a wedding. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made the observation one time. He said, it is not the will to rule that makes a man a king, it's the crown. The crown is the wedding. That's where the covenant begins. Um, and, and sometimes you think, well, you know, they're just gonna, they're gonna get married anyway. Well, I, I'm here to tell you, I've had couples break up in my office for, where they came for premarital counseling, and I'm just so bad at it, they break up in my <laughs> office. I had a couple one night break up at their wedding rehearsal. Yeah. So it ain't over till it's over, and it ain't over till you're married. And anything can happen along the way. So I think what we want to do is protect the marriage covenant, which takes place in the marriage service. That's where things, that's where things really happen. Uh, another question on this that, that came up was responding to others with respect and compassion who are living outside of biblical standards for marriage. And I would say, first question to ask is, who's, who are we talking to? Mm -hmm. So are these believers or are they unbelievers? If they're believers, then speak to them with biblical clarity. Take them to Mark chapter 10. That's where Jesus teaches what wedding is. You can, you can go back. You can talk about marriage from the book of Genesis. The, those two align perfectly. And you, and you simply walk them through and say, this is God's plan for human flourishing. And if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to encourage you to follow God's plan. And you do that with gentleness, you do it with respect. If the people are unbelievers, okay, that's fine, but you wouldn't necessarily expect them to conform. They don't believe in the word, they don't have the spirit of God, so why would they? Well, here's an opportunity where you can bear witness. Peter says, you know, 
when you're, when you're bearing witness, give account of the hope which is within you with respect and with gentleness. 1 Peter 3.15, with respect and gentleness. So here you can share the biblical vision for what marriage is. And I have found it's really uh, effective in talking with unbelievers about your own struggles. And I'll tell you about one of mine. So when I was 19 years old, I was not a Christian. I was in college, I was dating a girl, and we were having sexual relations. And she called me one day and she said, Tom, I missed my period. And it threw me into a tailspin. I had planned a whole junior year abroad coming up and so on and so forth. And now all of that I thought was gonna be blown up. I thought, what, what has been going on here? And one of the things I realized in the middle of reflecting on this season was that I had pretended something was true in my body which was not true in my soul. And I was being disintegrated through acting out in my body which was untrue of my spirit. And that reality, by God's grace, Tom, I don't know how this happened because I wasn't even a believer yet, but that, that was taught so deeply into me, this disconnect. When I realized it, I thought, I'm never gonna do this again. I'm never gonna do this again until I'm in the covenant. Hmm. And that's the way it worked out. Yeah. But this, this, this thing, we are, we are meant to, we're, we're body and soul together. And when we pretend and act out something with our bodies that isn't true spiritually, we just experience this pulling apart. And it's very, very painful. There's another piece, I think, when I'm talking with unbelievers that's worth thinking about. And it is the sense of shame. Um, our, our daughters all went to State University and they had the walk of shame. Did any of you have a college with a walk of shame? The, the walk of shame is the walk between the girls' dorm and the men's dorm and it's two-way street. It's the, and, and, and it's the walk you take in the clothes you wore the night before. Okay, you, you get the picture, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Why is it called the walk of shame? Why wouldn't they say it's the walk of triumph and joy? Because people know in their hearts that yeah. what they've been up to is not really what they were built for. And I think that's just kind of common grace evidence yeah. of, of, of what's, what's really going on in our soul. And then the third thing I, I think I'd like to talk about with unbelievers is just talk about the pros and cons of the sexual revolution. There were some good aspects, I think, of the sexual revolution. By the way, I have four sisters and three daughters. Um, but I think there was also some very, very damaging messages that came through the sec sexual revolution. For example, that, uh, that women's bodies and men's bodies belong to them. They can do whatever they want with their body. The Bible says you are not your own, you've been bought with a price. Mm -hmm. Glorify God in your body. We don't belong to ourselves. We didn't create ourselves. We certainly didn't redeem ourselves. We belong to someone else. We have, a, we have an accountability here that's so important. Um, so anyway, there, those are a few thoughts. Yeah. On this you know, I, I wish that um, we could say this, but we can't say this. That when you become a follower of Jesus, all these temptations, and we're talking about this area of sexuality, yeah. all the temptations just go away. No. <laughs> but, but we know that's, that's likely not reality, right? So how do we balance this thing out? So we have human desires, right? And then what is clearly what the Bible says. So how do you balance that out? I mean, like, what's it look like? I think it's just practice. Yeah. So one of the things the Bible says, it, it talks about practicing sin. 
And I was asking Tom earlier, I know Tom's a runner, and I asked him, I said, do you, do you practice when you're running? Well, yeah, I run, so I practice to run. I said, well, okay. So you think running is a good thing? Well, yeah. When we practice sin, we're saying sin is good. It's not good. Why isn't it good? Not only because God says it's not good, but God says it's not good because it's not good for us. This is about loving people according to the truth of what's good for us. And I think that's just a really important part. Yeah, and I have discovered too in my own life, in my own spiritual disciplines, that when we commit our life to the Lord, in particular areas perhaps, perhaps we make those spiritual commitments, um, we're not left alone, right. <laughs> right? right? The Spirit of God enables us to live these out as we commit to Him and focus on Him. His Spirit lives in us. Yeah. So um, we don't, it's not an area that we battle alone. If we are battling alone, really you need to stop doing that because we'll probably lose that yeah. battle, right? Yeah. Um, it's a battle that the Spirit of God enables us to live out as we make these spiritual um, disciplines in, in our life, commit to these. So question number three, how should I respond to those who agree with social media posts that are outside biblical span standards? So how should I respond and how can my behavior be consistent with the example of Jesus regarding all the sexual options today? So um, the social world, we probably, most of us, our understanding of what's going on. And so we've heard the term keyboard warriors. <clears throat> so maybe, maybe that defines who you are or you've been the subject of someone else who is a keyboard warrior. How do I respond to those? We're seeing those people um, who proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, but liking posts or commenting on posts, it seems in an affirmative way, um, things are clearly outside biblical standards. So how, how do I respond? And in some cases, you kind of touch on it a little bit, that you have kind of two, two worlds, and I will, just, I will also place people in two worlds here when, when, um, by responding to the question, those that we are in relationship with and those that we are not in relationship with. And what often happens, we see people who are not in relationship with others battling it out on social media. Do you understand what I'm saying? So how do I respond? Well, I begin with relationship and with this question, are you in any relationship with that person? Um, dealing with conflict and our role as, as followers of Jesus, <clears throat> always ask this question, do I have passport? In other words, am I allowed entry into that person's life due to a relationship? And have I earned the right to speak into this person's life? And if the answer is, is yes, and I can answer that question, then I pray for the opportunity to do, do so. So it begins with relationship. Um, those people that you have some type of, of, um, of, of a relationship, relationship with. I have a, a person in, in my network who is a follower of Jesus, who um, has aligned with um, biblical issues that are clearly un, un, unbiblical. And I, and I am planning to meet with this person, and I, but here's what I'm doing. I'm saying, God, will you, will you organize the setting and the opportunity to do that? So I wanted to be in the right time and in the right place, so I'm right there with whoever else is right there as well. But it's because I have a relationship with this person that I believe will allow me um, passport to speak in to, to their lives. Uh, the other thing is, the part of the question I, I think is, is important, how can my behavior be consistent with the example of Jesus regarding all the sexual options today? Um, clearly, there are times, I was sharing it with 
uh, someone this past week. There are times when I just want to stand on this stage and rant and rave. I do. But you wouldn't probably like that. Um, it wouldn't be beneficial at all. But there is so much going on. It's so unbiblical. And I don't know about you, but the, the hair on the back of my head, just neck, just begins to stand up sometimes. <laughs> um, so I begin with how, 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 how can my behavior be consistent? I begin with the heart. Our behavior begins with the heart. When you think of this person, what surfaces in your mind and your heart? And so it always begins with me. So I have ought or hatred towards that person. It has to start right here before my behavior can be following the example of, of, of Jesus. That's not the example he gives us. Um, the question, I think, uh, is what, what does loving your neighbor look like, right? Um, now, let me define neighbor. <clears throat> neighbor used to be defined a little bit different. Used to be the person across the fence, right? Or you know, your lawns kind of butted up against each other. That was your neighbor who you considered your neighbor. Well, that whole landscape has changed today because you see a lot of people driving into their garages, open, open the garage door, drive in, close the garage door, go in the house, never have a discussion with their neighbor. So the neighborhood has changed and is more often the people that you work with, the, your network of people that you have coffee with, maybe you hang out with, that, that's your neighborhood. So what's it look like to love, love your neighbor? A neighbor is the person closest to you. Well, let me share from the Old Testament, Le Leviticus chapter 19, because I, I think what we, what we see here um, uh, fleshed out is what's it look like to confront in love. So here it is. Here's the scripture. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17. You should always read the Old Testament. Okay, more about that later. Um, here it is. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Where does it start? In your heart. You should not love your, you should not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Now, reason frankly can be interpreted however you want, right? So you can confront them, but you to reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge, it's a heart, against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Confronting a person in love, and you remember if you were hanging out um, you know, a few weeks ago, I said Jesus confronted sin as an act of love. So confronting sin or wrong behavior or reasoning frankly is not in conflict with loving your neighbor. It's not, in fact, it's an act of love, right? But we must do so um, with behavior defined by this passage and others. And the only way I know to do that is to con consistently commit my life and commit my actions to the Lord, asking God, would you, would you be the one who directs my actions? And would you be the one that speaks to me if there's something in, in my heart? So I think that's where, where it begins. We to love our neighbor, confronting, um, um, doing uh, uh, reason, reasoning frankly, all has to happen within the context of, of love, loving our neighbor. So I think that's how we respond. But it has to be in relationship. It doesn't work, right, if you don't know that person over there, they're not going to listen to you. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Yeah. And I think this is the problem with social media. Right. I mean, if, for, as far as I'm concerned, if you can, get offline as quickly as possible for yeah. the conversation. Right? Just get out of that whole fishbowl that social media has become because everybody's too worried about every, what everybody else thinks rather than just sitting down and saying, what do you think? Can we talk about this? 
Because they know there's an audience listening in. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, question uh, number four. Are you ready? This is yours. While showing love to a gay or lesbian relative, how do I set boundaries in my home? Really, really good question. Yeah, yeah. so my answer to that question is going to be pretty short because the next question requires a little yeah. longer an answer. Yeah. So uh, basically, for me, the answer is pretty simple, and it has to do with respect. I think you have to respect each other. When someone comes into your home, they need to respect that they're in your home. When you're in their home, you respect that they have the right to lay down the rules for their home. But in, when they come into your home, and I think this goes back to communication, hmm. it goes back to do I have passport? Right. So do, do I have a way that I can say to this person, look, here, here's how I feel about what goes on in my house, and I'd ask you to respect that when you come to stay. Now, people can come and stay, but what they do while they stay is their business because you've given them their responsibility to respect your wishes. So in that setting, then, you have kids. Say there's kids in yep. the home. So yep. is it necessary to have a conversation with the kids? Because they're going to see what's going on. They're going to go like, what's up with this? And then the second part of that question is how about agreement with a spouse if, if, if you're married? Yeah, I think yeah. it's, I, yeah. I think I would start with agreement with spouse. Yeah. I mean, I think you want to be on the same page so that when you have the conversation with your guests and then subsequently with your kids, you're aligned together in those two other conversations. Yeah, good, good. And there's more to this question, right? That yeah, we have so, there, so, so yeah. the other, the other uh, part of this question is uh, um, relative to uh, same-sex marriages and those involved in same-sex marriages or involved in homosexuality and gender transition. Okay, so I wanna make a, um, a preliminary comment to come into this to begin with. So we talked about the fact that we see marriage in uh, Mark 10 outlined, man, woman, marriage. Um, I wanna go back though. I think I wanna go way back. I wanna go back all the way to Genesis chapter three. Do you remember back in Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any uh, tree in the garden, fruit from any of those trees, except from the one tree in the middle of the garden, and you can't eat from that tree. It contains the, the fruit of the knowledge of what? Good and evil, okay? Hebrew scholars tell us that this term, the knowledge of good and evil, actually has to do with God prohibiting them from naming good and evil. In other words, deciding what's good and what's evil. And it's interesting because Adam and Eve get to do a lot of naming, right? They get to name all the plants and stuff, the flora, the fauna, all of it. They get to name all that stuff, the animals. But they don't get to name good and evil. And the question I think we should ask is, why is that? And I think the answer is very profound. And the answer is this. Because God is imaging himself in Adam and Eve, they don't know how God wants his image worked out in human history, in human beings. And so God reserves the right to direct what his image will be in the world. They don't, they don't know how to do this. They can name animals, they can name plants, but they don't know how to name right and wrong, good and evil. And God restricts them because they don't know what they're doing with that. Only God knows how he wants to be imaged in the world. And what we need to do is to recognize is that when God lays down the contours of that imaging, we need to abide by those contours. I just mentioned marriage, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, a moment ago. Marriage between a man and a woman. 
That's God's plan for human flourishing. So when we move into some of these other areas, like homosexuality, for instance, we have a number of texts in the Bible, Old and New Testament, and again, we'll put them up on the website for you. There are a bunch of them that talk about this. And they talk about it not because God's a killjoy and doesn't want people to have fun or find love, it's because this is the way God's image comes into the world. It comes into the world in marriage in this way. And I think it's very important for us to understand that. That's how God establishes marriage. There may be, our culture now says that you can legally be married to someone of your own sex. That's legal in our culture. But is it spiritually uh, following God's will? And I think the answer is no. When you read the Bible, it just isn't. It's not what God has planned from the beginning. there are explicit scriptures, as I mentioned. We'll, we'll put those up on the website. I won't, I won't walk through all of those. Um, and as to the question of salvation, you know, if somebody's gay or if they're transgendered, are they going to be saved? I don't know. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says when Christ returns, he will judge the living and the dead. Tom's not going to judge. I'm not going to judge. Why? Because we don't know what's real with people. We don't know what is in their heart. The Bible does make clear that if we pursue sin, if we practice Practice. sin, that that leads to death. The Bible's pretty clear about that. So I think we want to be careful as to what we say about what people should be able to do in their own practice in following Jesus and following God's plan for human sexuality. The question of transgenderism, uh, as far as I know, the Bible doesn't address transgenderism. It addresses cross-dressing, but it doesn't address gender transformation. But I do think that as you read the Bible and and the parts of the Bible that speak into what human sexual relationships look like, that there are at least three mitigating principles that speak against it. Number one is that biblical creation is binary in its view of sexuality. It's not non-binary, it's binary, it's male and female. That's, that's the way it's lined out in scripture. And I think there's also in scripture a unity of sexuality and gender. In other words, the distinction we make in our culture between sexuality, our biological sex, and our gender is not found in the Bible. That's a human construct and we've tried to separate gender from biology. Um, we don't find that in scripture. Um, It's a human construct and it's based on subjective experience of human beings. Now I wanna say something really important here. Sexual dysphoria is a real thing. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing and it's a painful, painful, painful thing. If you've spoken with people who've experienced this, this is probably one of the deepest hardships I think a human being can experience in in their internal world and internal life. And I think people need to be loved and cared for here. I'm yet to be convinced that transgendering is the way to do that well. But I think we have to take this as a serious reality in the world, the the sexual confusion and and the sexual um, pain that people feel in this, I think is just so important for us to, to be in touch with. And the other thing I wanna say too is that homosexual, heterosexual, transgendered, we all live on the far side of the fall. In other words, all of our views of what sexuality is are bent, according to the scripture picture. 
Whether I'm a heterosexual man and every woman I see I want to take to bed, that's bent. Mm-hmm. If I'm a homosexual man and I'm attracted to a homosexual woman, that's bent. If I'm into this other stuff and trying to swap out my genders, there's, all of us are affected by this. Paul says the whole creation groans in travail under the influence and the suffering of the fall. And we meet each other all equally in that. There are no exceptions. Nobody's any worse off than anybody else. And we have to have love and care and mercy for each other because as one writer said, the ground under the cross is level, meaning nobody's any higher up, further down. The ground under the cross is level. Yeah, I think so. And I think part of <clears throat> the discussion that we often enter into is, like, but I was, I was born that way. And I think I addressed that a little bit last week. Um, I'm born that way, therefore that's the way God, God created me. And uh, you, you sort of just, just kind of touched on that, Tom, because it, it, it's, it's, we're all born into sin, yeah. right? We all suffer the impact of, of being fallen mm-hmm. creatures. Yeah. And um, so I, I really discount that argument. I was born that way because, because my dad, you know, who I, who I, who I didn't know, I, we, we, I've shared that story, um, dealt with alcoholism. Am I born an alcoholic? Or what if I'm born with a tendency towards anger or, um, you know, some other character flaw, you know, might, might be born into that. But God always puts boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his word says no, in particular this area that you're talking about. Um, this is how you live. And you will live within, in regards to marriage, you live within the confines of marriage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we see that in the Bible. So that's what we consistently talk about. What does the Bible say? So you know, I'm that guy that, you know, I mean, I, I, I like to say yes, according to the Bible, um, but you know, I'm the yes guy, right? So I'm gonna say yes to, yeah, you can have that room. Yeah, you can have those, yeah, you can do all that kind of stuff. So I wanna always say yes because it, you, you know, know. I wanna be liked. Wanna be liked, but you can't do so if you're following the Bible. Well, and right? I think one other thing, and this is yeah. really important that we wanna add here is that the, the end game for all of our suffering in all of our confusion and all of our fallenness, the end game for us is redemption and restoration in Jesus. Yeah. That's the good news. This is not gonna be, it's not gonna be like this forever. We're not gonna struggle forever. There will be redemption for all of us yeah. and all of our sin. And that's all men there. Yeah. So uh, we gotta, we, we're going to move on here. So question number five, as parents, how do we handle the entertainment world when it, con- when it contains so much inappropriate language and sexual content? So as a parent then, how do, I, how, how do I handle that? Well, let me just kind of quickly say, you remember the Nike commercial, just say yes? Yeah, so I say as a parent, just say no. I mean, honestly, we, we talked about last week, spiritual training. Um, is intentional. We must intentionalize that. I've used that example uh, before, this example before of, of our students running in the traffic, you know, or they're going to run into harm's way. As a parent, if we see that, what are we going to say? We're going to say, stop, right? Or you're not a good parent, quite honestly. If you can just say, well, we'll let them run in the traffic. They can kind of discover, you know, if that's good for them or not. No, it's bad for them. And so we say no. And so I think that sometimes we have to step it up. There is so much coming into your home and into our, or attempting to come into your home and attempting to come to my home, coming through entertainment, the books the kids are being given to read. It goes on and on and on. And, and as parents, we have to step up and go, no, that's not going to happen. The battle for the minds of our children 
is intense and parents have to be intentional in that. So how, how do we handle it? Look, um, um, your, your kids may say, well, I, I don't like that. And I, and I go, you know. So what? Yeah, so what? Yeah, you don't like it, but I'm the parent and I'm in charge of the spiritual training in our home. So this is the way it's going to be. Quick verse, uh, one that you probably know well. You shall love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So where does it start, parents? It starts with us, right? In our example, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It always starts with the parent. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently, diligently to your children. You can't teach what you don't embrace yourself. It will not work. Your kids will figure you out right away if you go like, do as I do, not as, or do as I say, not as I do. Teach them diligently to your children, and, and uh, you shall talk to them when you, sit in, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you arise. You shall bind them as the sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It begins with the parent. Sometimes I think parents, I'm, I'm not talking to, I have no, I know none of you if this is true or not. I'm just saying generally, right? Sometimes I think parents give their kids um, way too much freedom and choice in spiritual things but would never give the same choice, say, when it comes to like, are you, you, you wanna to go to school today? No, what do we say? Like we say, like, you are going to school today. I don't care if you have shoes on. I don't care if you have a lot, you are going to school. So school's coming up. No parent, I don't think, would go like, you wanna do school this year or do you just wanna stay home? But we, we give our kids sometimes the choice when it comes to spiritual things. You wanna to go to church, you wanna, you want, to, you, want to do this or you want to do family devotion? I mean, we get there. Yeah, you don't have to, but you need to discover it for yourself. So I just say, like, we have to be really, really intentional, more so today when I was raising my kids. Yeah. yeah so, all right. Um, next question. Question number six. Tom, what's it look like to be a spiritual gatekeeper? Ah, uh, can, you get, can you give more specific guidance and tools that parents and grandparents can, be, can use as a gatekeeper? This is always the classic thing. Pastor, tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. give me some real yeah, help instead yeah. of all this theoretical stuff you guys always talk about. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I went into panic mode when I read this question because I thought I have no idea how to answer this because all of my kids are in their 30s. I haven't done this kind of parenting yeah. in two decades. So it's like, wow, now what, you know, and, and the, the crisis is worse because my middle daughter is pregnant with our first grandchild. So I know that actually I'm going to have to get some game yeah. in this area. And it kind of made me think, wow, I wonder what is out there. I started, you know, looking around on the internet. And, and what I found is, and we'll list some of these for you again on the website, but there are tons of resources for Christian parenting in terms of how do we deal with media, movies, uh, social media, all these various kinds of things. And there, there, there are sites that do, they do checks on all this kind of stuff. They will tell you what's good, what's bad, what's, and they'll, they'll I mean, it's, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. So if you're a parent or like I am about to be a grandparent or are a grandparent, know that there is good help out there. Yeah. We'll, we'll post a few of those uh, up on the website for you. Excellent, so two more questions. You guys okay for two more? We'll do okay, them quick. Okay, we'll do them quick. So uh, question number seven, what value should we look for in the political candidates we support? 
is someone outside of God's will if they vote for a candidate that supports abortion and homosexuality? It's a really, really good question. And here's why I say I vote for the person whose values most closely align with my biblical values, the way I understand the Bible. Um, The the question specifically addresses uh, abortion and and homosexuality. I will will say this. The Bible speaks to a lot of other values, including caring for the poor, right, the oppressed, the widows, and, and the orphans, and so on. Um, but for me, I would never vote for a person who supports abortion or homosexuality or sexual, sexuality outside of biblical standards. So that, that's that. Um, how do I look at it? So I think you look at it in three different ways, person, party, or platform. I'm, I don't vote for the person at all. I don't vote for the party, Democrat, Republican, independent what platform aligns most closely um, with my understanding of biblical, biblical values. And so uh, quickly, um, we're kind of prohibited from endorsing a candidate or discouraging voting for a, can- for a candidate, but we can and do speak to some of the issues. And that kind of ties into our, our, last, our last question, but let me give you one verse. Proverbs 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so on question number, um, or before the next question, Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Mm -hmm. So we'll post those scriptures as well. But what what platform aligns most closely to my biblical values? Um, Last question, um, what role should a Bible-believing church play in helping its members know how to vote? Okay, so and I'm going to just run through some quick bullet points here. Churches, first of all, can and should address issues. And I think they need to be addressed not only, you know, as we ramp up to an election season, but they should be addressed as, as the texts that we are reading and studying in community together bring them forward. We should find out what, is, what does the Bible say about social justice kinds of issues, about personal morality kinds of issues. What does the Bible teach us? So I think churches need to be involved in that. Um, I think they also need to focus on the issues that are really of central biblical or theological significance. In other words, there's a lot of things that we would disagree about politically that the Bible is neither here nor there about. Uh, you know, so let's focus on the stuff mm-hmm. that's important and germane to our theology and to our understanding of what scripture teaches. And, um, and, and let's work those out in our teaching ministry and in our mission, right. and in our mission. Right. And then the last thing I would say uh, on this is that um, Sometimes churches forget their central purpose in all of this, and they get all wrapped up in all the the social stuff and the issues that are going on or election-related issues, and they forget that our primary job, Jesus said, is to make disciples and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's, only the church does that. Nobody else in the world does that. And when we lose that focus, we've got a real problem. So there needs to be a, a sense of balance and centering in what we do as a congregation, what we do as a church, that is make sure that we don't lose that central thrust. Yeah, yeah. Eight, so there's eight questions kind of compiled. Uh, hopeful, hopefully, if you were the author of one of them, you kind of recognized uh, the answer there. But I think they're excellent questions. I pray that they have helped each and every one of us. I, I cited a couple of references from the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I do. And I know that's something that we tend to skip, skip over, many of us. But uh, we're hosting a seminar 
on November the 5th. It's a four-hour seminar by one of your colleagues, Dr. Carol Kaminsky. Yeah, so Carol was a colleague of mine at Gordon-Conwell. She is uh, one of the most popular professors on the campus, PhD from Cambridge in Old Testament. She is brilliant, she's funny, she's Australian. And yeah. you will learn, you'll learn more from Carol Kaminsky in four hours than you'd learn from me in four months. She's just that good. So yeah. uh, I cannot, you know, if you have friends that want to kind of get a handle, she'll, she'll give you a handle on the way to understand the whole storyline of the Old Testament in four hours. So that's coming up November the 5th. So just circle that date. We're going to be getting more information out and uh, we're, we're going to make it very affordable for everybody. And we'll provide scholarships for those who can't afford um, what the registration fee will be. So November the 5th, that's coming. It's, it's going to be just a tremendous treat for, for all of us. So we're done. Okay. So anyway, um, thank you. We're, um, here's the deal. So let, let me, we're going to pray. And uh, um, um, the, the whole series is about living from a biblical worldview. It, it's not about a series or six or seven weeks that we've been in. It's got to be our life has to be our life. So I pray, you know, get into the Bible, like um, pray the Spirit will lead you.